want to speak to you tonight from this psalm on the, the subject of what faith's eye sees. What faith's eye sees. And you notice how the psalm begins, Unto thee lift I up mine eyes. And surely there is the thought there of the eye of faith focusing upon the Lord himself. That is what is meant by the eyes that are in view here in this first verse. And you'll find eyes mentioned then in the following verses as well. I think four times in the psalm you will read the word eyes. And we are finding, therefore, that the eye is a symbol of the faith of the Christian. And the eye of faith, therefore, looks up, looks away from the earth, it looks toward heaven, looks toward God, and toward all that He is and all that He represents. There only is one person, and I've said this many a time in preaching, and just to remind you of it, there only is one person of whom we ever read in Scripture who prayed with his eyes lifted up. Uh, physically, I mean, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you find that in different places uh, in, the, in the New Testament there in the Gospels. For example, at the grave of Lazarus, the Lord lifted up his eyes and he prayed to the Father. Or John 17 and verse number 1, when he began that great high priestly prayer, we're told that he lifted up his eyes and he looked away to the Father. You find other people who could not do that, who are mentioned uh, with regard to their eyes, their physical eyes. For example, the, uh, the public and in the temple, and it says there, as he is described in all of his own unworthiness, and he felt that unworthiness, it says there in Luke 18 that he would not lift up so much as his eyes onto heaven. He knew his unworthiness. He knew that he could not look up to the Lord, as it were, as a sinner, uh, he was solid, he was impure, he was unworthy, and he felt that. And to demonstrate how he felt that, he would not lift up his eyes uh, to heaven. Or you think of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 9, verse number 6, a verse we haven't come to yet in our study, but we probably will by the help of the Lord as the weeks go by. And he said that he blushed to lift up his face or his eyes toward God because of his own sin and the sin of his people. And so when we read these words, unto thee lift I up mine eyes, and this is the psalmist, of course, writing here, one of the songs of degrees, we have to understand this as uh, a symbolic of his faith, the eyes of faith lifted up toward the Lord. With regard to the Lord's people, therefore, in prayer, these words are symbolic of engaging the soul in prayer. We find that many places, for example, if you just look back to Psalm 121, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. And you see the, the hills there are the hills of God, the hills of glory and all of the majesty of the Lord. And the point is that our physical eyes don't see that, cannot see heaven, we cannot see into heaven, we cannot see the Lord and view him with a physical eye in that dimension of things, but rather from a spiritual dimension as uh, how these words are to be understood. And so Psalm 121 also talks about the psalmist, or he speaks about lifting up his eyes to heaven. Or in Psalm 25 and the verse 1, you read of the psalmist again, and he says, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. 
And then he says in verse 15, mine eyes are ever toward the Lord. So you bring the two together. Psalm 25, verse 1, he says, unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Then he explains what he means in verse 15, mine eyes are ever toward the Lord. And again, uh, the thought is of the soul be lifted up, the eye of faith, that's where the soul, or that's where the eye of faith resides as far as our spiritual makeup is concerned. It's in our souls that the eye of faith is found. Used to be we didn't have any faith. We could not see or understand. We never looked in the Lord's direction. A man's direction is always downward. He's always looking at the world, always looking at the things of time and what's around him and the earth. That's his uh, his dimension, the unregenerate man, that's where he lives and dwells and it's all he thinks about, all he wants, all he harks after is this old world and he's always looking down to see what else he can get or how he can be enriched or whatever it might be or what power he can gain. But he never thinks of looking up, I mean in that spiritual dimension of things because he's earthbound, he's earth-tied and therefore, he cannot say, as the psalmist does, unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. And then again, in that same Psalm 25, mine eyes are ever toward the Lord. And so the clear thought of the very opening part of this Psalm 123 is that of having an unclouded focus on the Lord when we come to seek him, lifting up the eyes of our soul, lifting up those eyes above the world, above circumstances, above trials, above evil men, above ourselves. That's maybe where we should begin, lifting our eyes above ourselves. Because, well, from that spiritual point of view, we're not really much, are we? And we need to get our eyes off ourselves and get our eyes on the Lord and above everything else, and have that clear, unclouded vision of the Lord. That's the thought with which this psalm opens. And you know, I thought about Moses, and he's such a powerful illustration of this, because in Hebrews 11, verse 27, you read these words about Moses. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible, that is a powerful statement. The invisible God. He's described that way in the book of 1 Timothy. The God who's invisible. The God who's immortal. The only wise God. And man, with a natural eye, cannot see him. As I said earlier, he doesn't want to see the Lord and to do with the Lord. But the Christian has an eye to the Lord and has a view of the Lord. And there is Moses who actually, as it says there, saw him who is invisible. And only faith can bring the Lord into sharp reality. Only faith can give us a view of the Lord that causes us to have a sight of Him that is clearly uh, in keeping with the revelation of Scripture. You see, that's where we see the Lord revealed to us or displayed before our minds. And therefore, as we see the Lord in the Word, who He is, His majesty, his attributes, his, all of the qualities that belong to him, all the works that he does, then we find our souls lifted up within us, wanting to converse with him, wanting to commune with him, and 
call upon him in the place of prayer. So what faith's eye sees is how we can understand this psalm. And what, do we, what does faith's eye see? Because he says, Unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. There are three things that faith's eye sees as we look at this psalm. Number one, his possession of majesty. Unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O, that, o thou that dwellest in the heavens. His possession of majesty. And literally those words, the second part of verse 1 where it says, O thou that dwellest in the heavens, those words may be read this way, O thou that sittest as enthroned. Thou that sittest as enthroned. And the reference is to the Lord's majestic and exalted seat of control over all things. And remember, of course, that he is omnip- he, the Lord is omnipresent. He is he's infinite. He, he fills all space And therefore, he cannot be contained in any particular place. I mentioned that on Sunday. And that, of course, is something that's beyond our minds even to begin to understand. The omnipresence of God, that he is everywhere all at once. At any given moment, the Lord is everywhere. And therefore, it says here that he sitteth enthroned or he's sitting in the heavens. It's a reference to the third heavens where the Lord has a seat of authority and power and control over all things. And so it's a position of majesty. And when we dwell on that wonderful thought, the majesty of God, that's what the eye of faith actually sees, that God is majestic. That's a great doctrine on its own. It's a great truth. It's plainly in view in these words. And as we come to pray tonight, Let us keep it in mind. Let us just think about that. That we're coming before the God who sittest as enthroned, who is the the God of absolute majesty and all that majesty means with regard to all his authority and power and control. That's a vital truth to keep in mind in evil times. If you look farther down the psalm to verses 3 and 4, and notice what the psalmist writes there, about contempt and scorn. It says in the end of verse 3, we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. You see, as I said earlier, the ungodly have no view of God. They don't know Him. They don't understand Him. They don't love Him. Obviously, they, they hate the Lord. That is the fact of the matter. The ungodly hate the Lord. The world hates the Lord. The, the world hates everything about God, and especially the holiness of God and the majesty of God. And when they hear about it, what His majesty is and His sovereign control and His power and authority and so on over all things, it annoys them. It disturbs them. They don't want to be reminded of that. And therefore, they pour out their contempt against God, but because they don't know the Lord and and, and don't have the eye of faith to see the Lord, what they do is they focus on His people. Because the Lord is reflected in His people. He's seen in His people. Who the Lord is, is revealed in those who belong to the Lord. 
and therefore since the ungodly have no view of God whatsoever except one uh, where they hate him with all their hearts and minds, they will pour out their scorn and their contempt upon those who are the Lord's people. So that's what the psalmist means here. We are exceedingly filled with contempt. In other words, the ungodly look at the Lord's people and they pour out their contempt against them. It goes on to talk about that there, as I just read in verse 4 a little more. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. And so we find, therefore, in those times we are to focus on the majesty of the Lord as the world pours out its contempt and its scorn upon us who are the Lord's people, upon Christ's church, upon the Bible, upon all that's holy, all that's righteous, all that's godly, as they do that. This is where we are to have our eyes as this psalm directs us in these opening words, unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. And when you start to think about this, this matter of what the eye of faith actually sees, God's position of majesty, then it sees the Lord as someone who is unmoved and immovable. Because it says, as that opening verse indicates, that he sits enthroned. That's the sense of the words. And therefore, he cannot be deposed. He cannot be brought down. His purposes stand and will be fulfilled. And so he sits in the heavens. He's unmoved by all that's going on around him, all that's happening in this world. You see, the Lord is never disturbed. Just to put it in human terms, you and I are disturbed. We get annoyed with the ungodly, we get disturbed by what they're planning and their agenda and their plans and, and their schemes against the things of God. It disturbs us. But we should keep in mind that the Lord is not for one second is the Lord disturbed. He's not annoyed like you and I are annoyed. He's not anxious. He's never afraid. He does not know what that is. And therefore, how wonderful it is that when they are pouring out their scorn and their contempt on God's people in a direct attack upon the Lord himself through that medium, the Lord is in heaven and he is completely and absolutely unmoved. And he is also, as I said, undisturbed. So much so that it says there in Psalm number 2, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Look at that psalm with me because there's a glorious psalm in the sense of teaching this matter of the Lord seated there, his position of majesty, unmoved and, and undisturbed by what is going on in this world. And just read afresh, remind yourselves of what the psalm says in its opening lines. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And the word anointed there, of course, is the word for Messiah. And so it's men uh, taking counsel against Jehovah and against the Messiah. Let us break their bands asunder, they say. Cast away their cords from us. Now, when you read those opening words in verse 1 of Psalm 2, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? It's not to be understood, the question of the psalmist there in verse 1, 
It's not to be understood this way that uh, we want to try to find out why the heathen are raging and why they are imagining a vain thing. It's not that at all. What it really means is their uh, rage and their vain imagination is absolutely in vain because it will not dislodge God. That's how you understand the first verse. There they are, raging, filled with vain imaginations against the Lord, but the Lord remains unmoved, as we're seeing, and undisturbed. It's against the Lord, it's against Jehovah, it's against His Christ, and their plan is we'll break their bands asunder, we'll cast away their cords from us. What's God's response? Verse 4, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The very thing that they are hoping to do or that they would like to do or they're planning to do, not only can they not do it, but the very thing that they're hoping to do has all, or to dislodge or to bring to nothing has already happened. That is the Lord Jesus Christ is already reigning. And that's what they don't want. They don't want the Lord reigning or on his throne, but it already has happened. And so how vain are their imaginations, how empty is their rage, how useless and futile are all their efforts against God and his Son and against the people of God and the whole church of God because the Lord Jesus Christ already has been set upon the holy hill of Zion. And what a marvelous portrayal there is there of the unmoved, undisturbed position of the one who is uh, in that position of majesty, thou that sittest as enthroned. Nothing moves him, nothing will disturb him, nothing will bring him down. You and I need to remind ourselves of that and pray over that and not think for one second that the enemy has gained the day that they have accomplished their goal, that they have brought the Lord down somehow or other, they have disturbed the throne of God. It just cannot be. And therefore, here's a position of majesty. And you know, another thing that comes out of that is that as you think about those words, that position of majesty, not only is the Lord unmoved and undisturbed, but the Lord is what you might call unsullied. He's not affected by the scorn and the, and the wicked ridicule of ungodly men. It cannot touch him. It does not sully his nature. It does not bring upon him anything that is impure or unholy. All of the impurity of an ungodly world cannot touch the Lord. That's his position of majesty. But then go back to the psalm, Psalm 123. And let's look at it a little more because we come to verse 2 now and here we find that another thing that the eye of faith sees, not only a position of majesty, but his power as our master. So verse number 2, Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden Onto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. So think carefully about verse number two, because the psalmist lifts up his eyes in prayer and he fixes them 
upon his God. And now he sees his God, according to verse number 2, through the simile that's used there, the metaphors that are used in verse number 2. He sees the Lord as his master. It says here, as the eyes of servants look on to the hand of their masters, the eyes of a maiden onto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God. So what do you have in the first part of the verse? You have people who are subservient, people who are under the uh, control of someone who has got authority over them, a master in other words, just to use that particular word. And uh, that's the scene that you have there in, in verse 2, part A. The custom and role of the master or the mistress of the household or the school or whatever it might be with the servants and the, and the uh, maidens yielding obedience to that master or that mistress, that's the scene. And, and Paul, or sorry, David brings it in here. It is a metaphorical thing because that happens, of course, in, in daily life. There are people who are employees and uh, a household and, and they've got a master there uh, and that master is the one who calls the shots and, and who gives the directions and the, the, the person who is the servant is always uh, conscious of this and aware of this. I need to keep my eyes fixed. I need to keep my ears opened because if I neglect what the master wants, I'm going to get into trouble. And that, of course, is something that is part of life. And maybe not so much today uh, in this age of rebellion and great disrespect for authority, but it certainly used to be the case in times gone by, and the Bible reflects it very, very clearly, or as it speaks here as well, the eyes of a maiden under the hand of her mistress. And so the very terms there, metaphorical terms, they remind us of this person who is a master or a mistress, who has got authority and whose word carries great weight, and who who rules and controls the household and, and there must be regard and there must be respect given to that individual because of the way in which he or she operates as a master or a mistress of the household. And as I say then in verse number 2, it goes on to apply this to the Lord. Notice it, so are eyes. Because in the first part of the verse, the focus again is on the eyes, the eyes of servants the eyes of a maiden. They're watching, they're waiting, they're looking, and then the Lord, or the psalmist, applies it to us. So our, our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. Now the significance of this is great because if you think about that language in verse 2, the first part of the verse again, it talks about the eyes of servants looking on to the hand of their masters. And the eyes of a maiden onto the hand of her mistress. It doesn't say that the servants or the maiden are watching the master or the, the, um, the, the mistress's face, but the hand. And you see, the hand is the symbol of authority. And in households with this kind of practice, or conduct would have been known and may still be known in some places to this day. It was by the movement of the hand 
that the master or the mistress gave the signals that were to be uh, noted by the, the servants or the maidens in, the, in those households. And therefore, they were always watching very, very carefully to detect and discern the will of the master or the mistress signified by the movement of the hand. I'm sure most of you read some of the details about the queen after she had passed away or moving before she ever died. And it's actually a fact that the queen had that, uh, had that practice of maybe at the dinner table and she used her hand in a certain way and everybody else, I don't know whether they jumped or what they did, but they were watching for her hand movements. It was how she lifted a cup uh, or moved a plate or took her knife and nobody else was to, to begin to eat or do one thing at that dinner table until the queen had given the signal. Now, if you were really hungry, you might be exasperated. I don't know, but that's the way it was in the royal house. And it illustrates the point, just with a slight movement of her hand, lifting a knife or whatever, or taking a, a piece of bread or whatever it was off a plate, nobody else could do anything until she had acted, until she had moved. So they had to watch very carefully for the hand's movement to, or to know, well, it's okay now to go ahead and whatever, get her meal. And so that's an illustration of what David has in mind here, the servants watching for the hand of their masters. And it's not a matter of, of the master or the mistress here actually at a table perhaps having a meal, but it's the one who, as I said, is over the household, control of things. And therefore, those who are employed in that household are to watch very, very carefully to get the directions that are needed to know when to act and how to behave and, and what to do. As I said earlier there, looking to discern what the will of the master actually is by the movement of the hand. Because remember again that the hand in the Scripture is the symbol of authority. The word for hand here in the Hebrew actually signifies power. That's the thought of this in this word hand, power. And actually in our human bodies, if you think about the hand, the hand is an instrument of power. A hand has great power attached to it or contained within it. And uh, if you ever felt the weight of your father's hand, you would know what I'm talking about. But... It has that power within it to, to demonstrate, I'm in charge, and you will do what I say. The will of the person is actually, it's actually demonstrated through the action of the hand and the power of the hand. And so it's the Lord's hand that's in view here, really, and the thought flows on, you see, from verse 1 there. The eye of faith sees him seated in his majesty, and then the eye of faith also sees him in his power as the master. And let's keep that in mind tonight. There is only one master of, of the church, one master of the house of God, and that's the Lord himself. And while he employs his servants, and all of us are the servants of God, yet in the final analysis, as his servants, we are continually to have our eyes focused on the Lord, 
to discern what he wants, what his will is, what he desires us to do, how we're to act, how we are to labor, how we are to employ ourselves in the promotion of his kingdom and in the advancement of his of the gospel throughout the world. And so it requires us to really to, to really watch carefully, listen carefully, pray much, that we might be discerning believers, looking with that heart uh, for the will of God for our lives and for uh, the work of God, and be, and be glad that we're actually employed by the Lord, that we're privileged to serve the Lord and to be His and be under His control and under His guidance. And so there is that as well here. That is the second thing that the eye of faith actually sees. Sees the majesty who is seated on His throne and it sees the Master in all of His marvelous power. And then notice those words in verse number 2 at the close of the verse. It says, until he have mercy upon us. And there you have not only his majesty and his, uh, the fact that he's the master, but you have his mercy uh, coming out very clearly here. And that's what we look for. That's what we wait for, until he have mercy upon us. We need mercy ourselves. We live constantly in need of the Lord's mercy in our lives. We need mercy for our families. We need mercy for society around us. And we therefore have this desire that we will actually see the Lord begin to move, begin to operate. And as we watch for his movements and his indications of his power and his authority, it is all with the purpose in mind that we will see the Lord having mercy upon men in our day and in our time. Yes, it's only the Lord who is able to give mercy and bestow mercy and bring it upon his people, especially in the trying day, because that's the context. Remember how the last two verses make that clear. Uh, Times of contempt and uh, the scorning of those who are at ease and so on. And we look to the Lord for his mercy in such a day to be uh, freely bestowed and to be showered upon us that we might see the work of God being blessed and the souls of men being blessed and sinners receiving mercy and becoming the objects of mercy. You know, the Lord's mercy is higher than the heavens. The Lord's mercy is unlimited. The Lord's mercy cannot be thwarted by the contempt and the scorn of the ungodly. If he purposes to move and show men mercy, then he will do it. Does he not say, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And so it is that that we look for, the provision of mercy from this great God. And the eye of faith longs for such a day when mercy will flow again and we will see the Lord arising and visiting, coming among us and and bringing mercy into the midst of, of society as he moves by his Spirit and he applies the benefits of redemption and he visits souls, and he works in hearts all around us, and he visits his own church, we who are his people, how we need mercy from the Lord. Do you not feel your need of that? That each of us tonight, as a child of God, we're, we're careless, we're, we're so often negligent of the things of God, and we need this constant mercy from the Lord. Even in the place of prayer, we go down to pray 
And in the place of prayer such as we are in tonight, it is never an easy thing to lay hold upon God and to call upon his name. We feel our own limitation. We feel our own helplessness. We wonder how will we pray? What do we say? Uh, all of these fears, all of these doubts overcome us and fill our minds and hearts. And yet we're waiting on the Lord tonight. There he is. He's the majesty on the throne. He's the master in the house. And we're looking for the mercy of the Lord to be our portion as we wait upon him. And see that mercy overflow into all of the regions where we long to have it experienced. All the different ministries, all the different aspects of the work of God. And so I pray that tonight the Lord will bless your hearts through what this little psalm brings before us. And as we see that line of thought, uh, what the eye of faith actually sees. May the Lord give us eyes tonight to see and to understand who the Lord is and what the Lord is able to do. Let's just have a word of prayer at this point. Then we'll sing a few verses of a hymn. So let's just continue before the Lord here and let's unite our hearts in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to Thee once more. And we wait at Thy feet. And we thank Thee that Thou art the majesty and high. Lord, we remember how Paul could write in Hebrews of our Savior at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. And we praise thee tonight that through Christ and our union with Christ, we are seated in heavenly places even now. We've been raised up together and made to sit together with the Lord Jesus in those heavenly places. And we thank thee, Lord, that thou art our master. Lord, we want that. We don't want to be under the control of, of self or anybody else. We want to be under the control of our gracious master. And Lord, we're looking to thee. We're watching for thy hand to move. We're looking for the signals and the evidence that the Lord is moving. The Lord is working. We thank thee, Lord, for that in recent times. Lord, may it come again and again. And Lord, we long for fresh mercy. Even here tonight, we think of how Paul also could say, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so, Lord, grant us that mercy, we pray of thee. Continue with us. Bless our hearts. And may thy name be glorified. For this we ask for Jesus' sake and for his eternal praise. Amen.